Turn with me, if you would, to Nehemiah chapter 5. Now, we have been going through the life and times of Nehemiah and discovered that through him, his faithfulness, through the power of God, which is operating through him, and all of the people that were determined to rebuild, they now jumped in and started this new mission of rebuilding the walls around the city of Jerusalem. And we saw last week that once we started that, once we start to do something for God, we can be sure that opposition for what God's doing comes up in our life. But we always need to be ready to stand up against any attack that comes at us from the enemy. Nehemiah 4.16, we read last week, it says, From that day on, half of the men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. Nehemiah faced that opposition head on. He didn't cower back, and he prepared the people to keep working. And any effort that God is, that is God-directed, we need to be aware that there will always be an enemy attack. How many find that to be true? Whenever you step out to do something for God, you can be sure something is going to oppose you. Any effort that we step out for God, we're going to be attacked. And we have a similar admonition in the New Testament. Ephesians 6.11 says, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, we learned also in chapter 4 that the enemy outside didn't win that round. Nehemiah 4.15 says, When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. Every time we come up against opposition and every time we face it with God's word, we can be sure that at that moment we'll have victory. Jesus, when he was in the garden praying, he didn't pray once and the enemy left. He had to pray three times. The devil tempted him three different ways. And each time he came back with scripture. So every time we have a victory, we can be assured that the next time we take a step, the enemy's going to be there to meet us. And we'll see that in the next chapter. But I'm going to look at chapter 5 today because what the enemy can't win from outside opposition, I'm going to turn this down just a little bit. It's ringing a little bit. What he doesn't win from being opposed from the outside, the enemy is going to try to work from the inside out. Nehemiah 5.1 says, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Now these are people, these are, these are Jews that were complaining against their Jewish brothers. First he had a great work, and Nehemiah 4.19 says, The work is great and extensive. And then he had something that was started by a great God, Nehemiah 1.5. And I pray, God of heaven, O great and awesome God, and now we have a great outcry. But it wasn't against the guys that were mentioned in the last chapter. Remember, Nehemiah 4.7 says, It was Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, Ammonites, and men of Ashtar. That's who was on the outside complaining against the Jews on the inside. But now it was internal. It was an internal struggle. And it was against their fellow Jews. Now, what was happening? As with any group of people, you're going to have people that are dedicated to the things of God. They're hardworking. They're willing to sacrifice, and then you're going to have those that are going to take advantage of the situation. Nehemiah 5.2 says, some of these folks that were complaining on the inside said, we and our sons and our daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have, have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. 
Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards now belong to others. So you have four different groups of people in this paragraph. You have the people that didn't own anything, they rented their land, and they were starving, they didn't have food for their family. And then you had the landowners who owned land, but they had to mortgage their property in order to buy food. And eventually what would happen, just like happens sometimes today, the people who mortgaged, they mortgaged two, came in and they took possession of the property, so they no longer owned the land. Then you had those who were taxed so much they couldn't make enough money to buy food. And then they had to mortgage their property in order to buy food, and they weren't getting enough as well. And then you had the last group who were the wealthy Jews who were exploiting the people that were struggling. So you have the three groups, the ones that are dedicated to doing the work, and then you have the other group that's always willing to exploit those who are doing the work. It wasn't bad enough for the outsiders to oppress them, but now their own people are bringing that oppression upon them. It's one thing to face a common enemy and know your family, your country is behind you, but it's quite another to have that internal strife. When 9-11 happened, every little group kind of all came together, right? December 7, 1941, I wasn't around then, but the country came together. There was a common enemy, everyone banded together. But now these guys are having not only to face the outside, they're having to face conflict within. The very thing that they're working for, they're building these walls, why are they building them? They wanna be able to have property. They wanna be safe from their neighbors. They wanna have enough food. They wanna be, you know, all the reasoning behind their building this wall they're losing even before the wall was even being built. And, and the thinking was, in other words, why rebuild if I'm losing everything now? Even, when it's, even before it's built, I'm losing what I'm working for. So Nehemiah recognized the problem and again went at it head on. Verse 6 says, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. You ever heard that Christians shouldn't be angry? Right? You hear that? That's a misunderstood view of Ephesians 4.26 says, in your anger, do not sin. Doesn't mean we don't get angry. It means we just go off, don't go off half-cocked and do something sinful in response to our emotional anger that we have. It means to assess your anger and respond accordingly. Now today, in today's society, when something is facing us, some opposition is facing us, you might hear from the general public, what is a popular decision for this problem? In other words, what choice could I make that would make the most people happy? Sounds familiar. Or, what is a safe decision for this, pro for this problem? In other words, what could I do that means the least amount of trouble for me? Well, we as believers, like Nehemiah, shouldn't choose either of those responses. We should choose the one that Nehemiah did, what is the right thing to do. Regardless of popularity and regardless of safety in me, what is the right thing to do? Righteous anger may result in God allowing you to ponder it, but then acting in a manner like Nehemiah did. Remember, Jesus flipped over the tables, drove people out with whips, so verse seven says, I pondered them in my mind. He gets angry, but he doesn't go off right away. He thinks about it. He ponders it. 
And the word ponder actually means putting his head and his heart together. Your, head, your heart knows what to do, what, what it wants to do. And then your head has the logic to kind of combine the two. He didn't go in all angry and mouthing off. He didn't sin in his anger. He pondered the situation. Whenever we get angry, we need to take a breather, right? We need to ponder why it is we're angry and if we should respond to it. There's two verses in the Bible that are they're actually back-to-back. In uh, Proverbs, I believe, it says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly. And then right after that says, Answer a fool according to his folly. Seems like a contradiction, right? But it, what it means literally is there are times when you just have to suck it up and take it. No big deal, not a big, not a big problem. But then there are other times when you actually have to respond because the end of that verse it says, Answer a fool according to his folly, or he may appear right in his own eyes. There are times when you have to answer your anger. There are times when you have to respond to it. And so, that's exactly what Nehemiah did. Verse seven says, I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. Notice he did not go to each one individually. He called them all together to accuse them in public in front of everyone else because their actions and sins had affected the whole nation so it had to be dealt with in public. It demanded a public rebuke and a public repentance. Now how many are familiar with Matthew 18? Matthew 18 is if you have a problem with someone you go to them one-on-one and then if they don't respond you go with somebody else and then finally if there's a big issue you bring it before the church. Well When the sin is a public sin that everyone sees, in view of everyone, it needs to be corrected in front of everyone. There was an incident we had here several years ago that one of our leaders just exploded on Sunday morning and was venting and yelling and everyone heard it and they walked out. And everyone, it was a public spectacle. So I had to address it publicly to acknowledge what had happened and to to let everyone know what the situation was. There are times when you do it privately and there are times when you do it publicly. Nehemiah brought these folks out and they did it publicly. The Bible says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness but rather expose them. And there are times when we have to bring these things to light and that's exactly what he did. I wrote down here, anyone who doesn't have a sense of outrage over gross injustice or mistreatment of helpless or innocent people, especially from within, there might be a a problem. We need to be outraged at when sin comes in. There's a saying that says, we need to love what God loves and hate what God hates. God hates sin. And sometimes that demands a response from us. When Jesus flipped the tables and drove the money changers out with the whip, It was because they were taking advantage of the people who came to worship. There was a reason that they were money changing there. People were bringing their animals, and at the time, they were bringing their own, they were making the trip with their stuff, and when they got there, the money changers said, ah, your animal's not good enough, you gotta buy one from us. So they were taking advantage of them. That's why Jesus got upset. And he did it publicly. Nehemiah 5, 7 says, I told them you were exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, you, as far as possible, we have brought back or bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold 
into to the Gentiles, but now you are selling your brothers and only for them to be sold back to us. And they kept quiet for they can find nothing to say. Nehemiah deals with this on a, a couple of different levels. The first one, he tries to get them emotionally. And we've talked about emotional word pictures where we try to get someone's heart involved in the situation. He first says, you're doing this to your own people. You are exacting usury from your own people. In other words, guys, we know that everybody outside the wall hates us. They want us to destroy ourselves. We know that. We're okay with that. But you shouldn't be doing that internally. You're trying to destroy your own family. You shouldn't expect hardship from within. It's always harder when you face opposition from within with your own family, right? You know the world's against you. You know you're okay with that. But when someone that you're friends with, you have a relationship with, and they come at you, that's a lot different than when the world attacks, and that's exactly what was happening here. And then he goes on to talk about the history part of it. He says, that over the years, beginning back in Egypt, we have had to buy our brothers back from slavery. The Egyptians had them, everyone's had them in slavery, and we had to sacrifice to get them out of slavery. And now you're putting them back into the slavery we got them out of. Now it doesn't say this in the, in the paragraph, but it, the question could be read into it. Why do you think we bought these folks back from slavery? Why do we think we took all the effort to bring them out of slavery? The answer would be, so they can be free. So they can have their property, they can build their own things, they can, they can be freed from the enemy that was holding them within. And now you're doing the same exact thing to them that we delivered them from. When they were confronted with the truth, what happened? The last verse says, well, they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. When we confront a wrong being committed and we confront it with truth, the response should be that they are convinced that what they're doing is wrong. Doesn't always happen, but that's what we have to confront the truth or the, the wrong being committed with is the truth. Nehemiah 5.9 says, So I continue, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Remember, he's confronting his fellow Jews, not the outside world. Whenever there's strife in the family of God, we need to remember whom to fear. Are we honoring God with our actions? What kind of testimony are we being to everyone else? If we're the ones, if I'm the one that's causing strife and I'm always, wherever I walk into a room, there's always struggle, what does the world think when they see me? What does the world think? Paul addressed a similar issue in 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 4 says, Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and this you do to your brothers. There's always going to be differences of opinion in, in God's church. Always. What's the saying when there's every two people, there's three opinions? You're going to have discussions about things like that. 
The question is, how do you settle it? How do you come to a conclusion on that? This case, it wasn't a question of opinion. It was a question of somebody oppressing another one. And Nehemiah is asking them, the only person that you're going to give account to, fellow Jews, is God. And you need to be fearing him, not what I can do, not what you're doing. You need to have the fear of God come on you because what you're doing, you know is wrong from Old Testament law. Nehemiah continued in verse 9. He says, so I continue, what, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God to avoid the reproach of the Gentile enemies? Now these guys, they were, they were wealthy, they were leaders. They would have known the Old Testament law about you know, usury, all that stuff. They knew what to do. And yet they were doing it anyways. And Nehemiah is reminding them, look, if you believe the Old Testament and you follow that, you know what God's word says about it. You need to stop doing it because God had already said not to do it. And I, and I thought about that. How often do we know what God says about something and yet we don't do it? Or we don't believe it? Or we just ignore it? When I was picking up Jaden this morning, I was in the van, I was listening to a local preacher, I'm not sure who it was, and, and he said something that, to the effect that the problem becomes when we start reading scripture and we start reading something into scripture that's not there. Or you begin to have an opinion about something in scripture that you don't think applies to you. And one of his examples was, you know, I don't think God really meant that in this scripture. I never thought that. Or, well, the world today has changed and what mattered back then doesn't really matter today and what God said back then isn't true today. I mean, no, that's not true. But it's easy to try to read something into Scripture that isn't there or take something out of Scripture that plainly is there in order to avoid conviction on our part. And I believe that these guys, the, the Jews that were doing this, they knew the Old Testament law. They either didn't care, they didn't fear God, or they believed that it didn't apply to them. And there's a lot of Christians walking around that thinks that things in God's word didn't apply to, doesn't apply to us when it does. Galatians 6, 7 says this, don't be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who reaps to sow his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. How many know that God's judgment is not instantaneous? You can do things all your life and get away with it. And we're seeing a lot of that in the public view. You can live your whole life doing something wrong and never get caught, never get busted, never get judged by God. But there's going to be a final judgment. There's going to be a time when we are all called to account for the things we did or didn't do. And we're not going to be able to claim no excuse. You ever hear the phrase? I heard this when I was getting my driver's license. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. You may have heard that. In other words, you can't say, hey, I didn't know the speed limit was 55. You can't claim that as a defense. And you can't claim to God, I didn't know what your Bible says about that. And especially in America where everyone has one, and there's preaching galore out there to tell you what is right and wrong, we can never claim that, well, I, I, I didn't know. And what happens when we do things we know are wrong? We look like everybody else in the world 
Nehemiah 5.9 says, You're, you want to avoid the reproach of the Gentiles. How many know the world loves it when we fight? <laughs> the world just looks at us and laughs when we fight against each other. Why in such public news, why is it such public news when a pastor fails? Or a Christian gets caught doing something we, it may not even be wrong for the world, but we know it's wrong for us. What's the favorite phrase that people like to use against Christians? We are all hypocrites, right? Because we say one thing, but we do another. Now, it's not true. It's a world's generaliz- generalization of us. And they get that from occasionally people doing things that we know they shouldn't do. I like the New Living Translation version of that in Nehemiah 5, 9. It says, should you not walk in the fear of God in order to be, avoid being mocked by enemy nation? You know, the world laughs and they mock us when we act like them. How many think that the more we become like the world, the more people are going to get saved? A lot of people think that. The more I act like everybody else, the more I'm going to be able to win in the Christ. Actually, the opposite is true. The more we act like Christ and not like the world, that's what gets people's attention. Because when people get to a point in their life when they're struggling, they're not going to go to somebody who is living just like them. They're going to go to somebody who's not living like them, whose life seems to be in order, regardless of whatever struggles we may have. They want to see how you're dealing with it. What, What are you doing that's getting you through this struggle because I'm having the same one and I'm not getting through it? They want us to be different. Acting like the world does not win people to Christ. Doing what everyone else does does not get people's attention. Living like Christ is what gets people's attention. They want to know why you're different. The Jews who were charging usury were acting like everybody else. And the nations were mocking them because they're just the same. They're no different than us. Where's their God? Their God's so great, they're acting just like we act. But then Nehemiah steps up and he leads by example. In verse 10, he says, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. He was already doing it. He was already lending to people who need it. He wasn't telling anybody. He wasn't broadcasting it. He was already doing it. He didn't charge interest, he didn't take collateral, and he didn't require their kids to be sold into slavery. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, do as I say, not as I do? Parents are guilty of this sometimes. We want our kids to act one way, but then we kind of act a little bit different. Hopefully preachers aren't guilty of this. I'm sure some are. Hopefully I'm not. The point is, Nehemiah wasn't asking anything of the wealthy Jews that he was not already doing himself. James Dobson coined the phrase, more is caught than taught. And he used it in reference to children learning from their parents how their parents behave more than what their parents try to teach them. And as you're, if you're an adult, how many of you, when you speak and do things, you see your parents coming out of your mouth? Things that you said you would never do, you say, and you do. 
The world looks at us, and the world wants to see something different. Nehemiah stepped up and said, I'm doing it. I'm already doing what I'm asking you to do. I'm not asking you to do something that I don't already do. I want you to be involved in it. Leaders need to set the example by being the example. It's much easier to follow someone who's working alongside of you than someone who's watching you from way back. The New Living uh, Translation is a little bit easier to understand in verse 10. Nehemiah goes on and says, but now let us stop this business of loans. You must restore their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their homes to them this very day. Repay the interest you charge on their money, grain, wine, and olive oil. First, he tells them what they're doing wrong. And how many of you have people that just stop right there? They tell you what you're doing wrong, but they don't tell you what to do to fix it. Then Nehemiah goes on to fix it. He said, you need to restore the money. You need to restore the property. Give them back. Everything you took from them, give them back. That's how you do it right. It's one thing to encourage someone who's not doing it, but then you've got to show someone how to do it. Now, restoring all the money and the property does not solve the immediate crisis of no food. But it gives the, the Jews peace about the situation. They realize that it may, be, it may be struggle now, but now I am working for something that is going to work. I have my stuff back. I'm not losing my land. And the amount of energy and effort I put into building the wall is going to benefit me in the end. How many have heard of the teaching of the Jubilee year? Every 50 years, Jubilee year. The Old Testament law was every 50 years, you got to give back everything. You got to forgive everybody's debt. If you took their land, you got to give it back. Everything goes back to the way it was at the beginning. And this is kind of a pre Jubilee kind of thing. Nehemiah 5 12 says, Then they replied, We will give back everything and demand nothing from the people. We will do as you say. Then I called out the priests and the nobles and made the nobles and official formally vow to do what they had promised. I shook out the fold of my robe and said, if you fail to keep your promise, may God shake you from your homes and from your property. This is the desired result from any internal conflict. You confront the situation. You don't go in angry, but you go in prepared. You figure out what the problem is. Your anger should motivate you to do it correctly. If you're not angry about it, you're not going to fix it, and you're going to let it slide. But if it's a problem that needs to be addressed, the anger is what's going to motivate you to sit down and think about it and pray about it and then do what God calls you to do. And the confrontation should result in the person or the group or whatever it is that's going on, they should acknowledge it. They should see their problem. They see the sin, and they should repent of it. They should want to change. The problem is acknowledged, agreed to, and repented of. But, just to be sure, Nehemiah made them vow to God that they would do what they said they'd do. How many have had people promise you they're going to do something or not do something and then fail to act on the promise? Happens all the time. And Nehemiah knew that. He says, you know, you promised me all day long. That's great. But I want you to go a little bit further. I want you to promise to God. Because that has... That has teeth behind it. In the Old Testament, since they knew it, 
they knew what the Bible said about taking a vow. It's not something that you just say flippantly. You have to be serious about it. Ecclesiastes 5.4 says, When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to, make a, not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. In other words, it, if you're not going to do it, then don't promise God you're going to do it. But if you promise God to do something, you better fulfill it. You better do what, God, what you promised God to do. How many of you remember the phrase, trust but verify? It was popularized by Reagan in the 80s with the Soviet Union and their nukes and everything. We trust you, you know, but we're going to verify. Now, it seems to be a conflict, you know. Either you trust someone or you have to verify them. Well, I, I think it kind of works together. We trust each other to do something, but we, we, we want to verify that you're getting it done. How many have heard the phrase, I used to get it at work all the time, what gets done is not what's expected, but what's inspected. In other words, if no one ever comes to check on your work, no one ever calls you on it, you're not going to keep doing it 100%. However, if you know that at any time your work is going to be inspected by somebody else, you're always on top of your game to do it right. So what gets done is not what's expected, but what's inspected. So when they're making their vow to God, he's saying, look, you're not making it to me. You're not making it to the people that are around you. You're making this vow to God. So you need to be sure that what you're saying is true. And then verse 13, this is how it should end. Every conflict should end. Nehemiah 5.13 says, The whole assembly responded, Amen. And not a woman. <laughs> how many saw the meme that says, If you said... If you believe there's a man and a woman, you are a moron. They responded, amen, and they praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. So what, became, what was a business meeting turned into a worship service. Because God, God knows there's going to be conflict. God knows there's, you know, there's a method that God has to restore it. And if we do it right, the conflict will bring us reconciliation and bring worship. I remember years ago at our old church, we lived in Pittsburgh, steel town, and at the time, steel mills were going down. A lot of people losing their jobs. And one of our board members, a great guy, a good friend of ours, he was involved in a, in a program, and as I describe it, you'll know what it is. And on a Sunday evening, he said to the pastor, can I, can I get up and I'll, I'm gonna help the people earn some money. And he gets up and he starts pitching this program, which actually turned out to be Amway, all right? And at the end, I mean, his, his heart was right. He wanted people to earn, there were a lot of people out of work. He wanted them to help them learn money. But at the end of the service, on Monday, we're getting calls all day long, upset. Why we were doing that? Oh, it's terrible. You shouldn't be taking trips. And so we called. And we said, you know, you got to come in. We want to make this right. So the following Sunday, he comes in and he comes on the platform and really apologizes to everyone. Just, you know, I'm sorry, I just, my heart was right. I'm sorry I brought this up and, you know, a lot of people have a bad taste by this. I'm sorry. And everyone, they come up and they were hugging him and, and we started worshiping God. Why? Because we had a problem and we solved it God's way. And it, what turned out to be a disaster one week turned into a worship service the next. 
Whenever we do something and we are able to defeat what the enemy wants to come from within, there should always be a worship service, always be a time of worshiping God. I wrote down, whenever conflict is managed God's way, there should always be a resolution and after that, thanksgiving to God and worshiping God's wisdom in how he strengthens the body. Now, I'm not a doctor, but I think if I hear, you know, WebMD and all these things right, if you have a broken leg and you don't set it right, it's always going to be a source of pain, irritation all your life. However, if you get a broken leg and you set it correctly, the break point now becomes stronger than it was before the break, if it's set properly. And I think when we pursue God's will in rebuilding, you know, like we did last year, and the point of where it broke is going to become stronger when we do it God's way and fix it God's way. We can anticipate conflict from without, and we shouldn't be surprised if there are some internal skirmishes, but we should always be ready to defend those from without and reconcile those from within. And when that happens, what happens? We become stronger. The church of God becomes stronger. When that gentleman you know, apologized, the church became stronger from that point on. Whenever we handle things God's way, it becomes stronger, God's work continues, and we're gonna find out that even though they had all this conflict, guess what? They finished the wall. And they finished it in record time. God knows what he's doing. How many of you have kids? If you have, I heard Bill Cosby say once, if you have one child, you're not really a parent. You have two kids, that makes you a parent. Because the two kids do this. How many have that? And then you have, if you have more than two, you're already outnumbered. Then you have all four of them doing that. And you as a parent, I know, you hate to see your kids fight amongst themselves. But aren't you encouraged when they support each other and they back each other up and they say things that, like, oh, that was awesome. I, I'll tell you one thing about Nora and Hudson, grandkids. Hudson's a little bit older and he's focused on, you know, what he's focused on. But Nora always wants to make sure that Hudson has something. We, I forget where we took her out to the store. We wanted to get her something. And she always says, don't forget to buy something for Hudson. Don't forget to buy something for Hudson. And then when we, you know, if he, Hudson gets in trouble, she's always there to defend him, help, to help him, you know. That's the kind of attitude we want with all of our kids. And that's the kind of attitude that God wants for the church, to be unified, to have each other's back, to always be thinking about other people because when we do that, what happens? The church of God is built up and we're able to focus on what really matters and that's reaching people with Christ, for Christ. Would you stand this morning? I know you're all happy when you get out early. But we can spend time praying for a moment. Would you bow your heads for a second? Well, longer than a second. It's Pentecostal church. Longer than a second.
I'm excited for what God has in store this year. Don't know what it is, but I know that God knows what it is. And I think the biggest thing we have to do as Christians is anticipate that God is going to do something great this year. We can't always be looking at what's going on around us because if we do, just like Peter walking on the water, as long as he had his eyes focused on Jesus, he was good. Once he started focusing on the waves, he sank. And if we focus on what's going on around us, it's easy to get discouraged and defeated. But we keep our eyes on Jesus. In spite of what's going on around us, we'll be able to walk on water and accomplish great things for God. Historically, the church has always thrived in times of opposition. Just like the country comes together at the time of war, so churches thrive and they grow in spite of opposition, in fact, because of opposition. Whether that comes this year or next, we don't know. But we need to be prepared for what does come. And as long as we keep our eyes focused on Christ and moving forward, keep walking on that water, focusing on Jesus, then the waves and things around us are not going to buffet us. And we are going to accomplish what God wants us as a church to accomplish. The Bible says the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. So we will win if we keep our eyes focused on Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we are an insular beginning. This church is insulated by your Holy Spirit from what's happening in the world. It doesn't mean we're not touched. It just means we are able to operate regardless of what's going on around us. And it does not affect our desire to pursue you. So Lord, I pray that you would fill each one of us continually with your Holy Spirit, continue to encourage us to continue to keep our eyes focused on you and what you've called each one of us to do individually. We're not meant to accomplish, we're not meant to solve all the problems of the world. Our job is to focus on Christ, lead others to Christ, and build up the body of believers. That's our mission. And I pray that you would give us the energy, the stamina, everything we need to accomplish that. Your word says you've already provided. Jesus, you live in us. Your Holy Spirit is in us. And I pray that that spirit just wells up inside of us and takes control of everything in our life so that every response, every action, every word we say is directed by your spirit. If we, are, if we do that, we will know that not only are we in the center of your will, but we will see great things accomplished. So Father, I pray your anointing upon each person here today as we leave. God, let us feel and acknowledge and know the presence of God. And as we do that, Father, we will see great things happen as we step out in obedience. Just like Nehemiah did, they had to start rebuilding the wall, Lord. They had to do the work. Help us to do the work knowing that the work that we do is anointed by you and it will succeed. So, Father, bless us as we leave. Keep us in your care. Bring us back next week again to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people shouted in victory. Amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great week. See you Wednesday.